using stories like this to heal is really key. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Beeson Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. I'm going to do my best to keep this introduction uh, somewhat brief here as we are becoming the Avalanche Hour plus or minus an hour. This episode runs a little bit long, but for good reason, we catch up with Janie from the American Avalanche Association and get an update from the A3 there, and then we jump into an interview with Steven Sig, Jared Drake, who are producers and directors of the film Buried, um, and very special guest Jim Plain, who was the avalanche forecaster um, at Alpine Meadows during the 1982 Alpine Meadows avalanche that is chronicled in the film Buried. If you haven't seen the film, you need to do yourself a favor and check it out. It's available on demand now on iTunes and Amazon. Um, so let's jump in with an update from Janie from the American Avalanche Association. All right, we've got Janie Nolan stopping by the podcast today. Welcome back to the show, Janie. Of course, Janie's the executive director of the American Avalanche Association, as we fondly call it, the A3. And Janie, how you doing? I'm so good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, of course. You've been busy the last month you've been on the road traveling to different corners of the country and attending many of the regional snow and avalanche workshops. How has that been? Um, it's been really great. We, I think I've gone to six of the regional SAWs this year, uh, and it's been such a cool opportunity to connect with our members. And we are really excited to sponsor a lot of the SAWs um, just because it's a great place for A3 members to come together to connect to learn, you know, new information, new research, um, and really just professional development. So it's really important to us to both show up there in person if we can, and then to also just support financially as much as possible. Yeah, well, that's a great benefit um, that the A3 does for the community. What are, what are some other benefits of membership for A3 members? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think in general, just the sense of connection with the industry is really cool. Um, A3 members are just a great group of people. So that's number one. I think it's just a great network. Um, but this year, I'm really excited to have a couple of different benefits for membership. Um, we're going to have six new scholarships for pro training. So if you're taking your pro one or your pro two, um, we'll have women-specific scholarships. We'll have young professional scholarships. Uh, we'll have general pro one and pro two scholarships. Um, we have the VSIN scholarships. One is for underrepresented individuals. Um, and these really, I think, it's a great way. It's You can't apply for them if you're not a member. Um, so if you are a member, it's a great benefit. We also have a pretty robust pro deal program. So we work with IPA Collective um, and Expert Voice and all of our members, um, pro and affiliate members get access to those pro deals. And then if you're a pro member, there's even greater deals for like Ordebox or Patagonia um, and a couple other brands as well. 
And then we also have extended our research grant deadline and amount. So this year, our research grant program is, I think, $10,000, and it hasn't been that much before, which is super cool. Um, so that was voted on by the board a couple of weeks ago. And then also, we just have a ton of webinars this year, and we're planning some cool events for around mental health and you know women-specific webinars. And so that'll be a great resource for members this year moving forward. Um, and yeah, just a general, I think, connection. And if they, if anyone wants to learn more, they can check out the website or give me a give me a call or an email. Yeah, let's talk quickly about the uh, publications that the A3 oversees. Of course, there's the Avalanche Review that comes out four times a winter that you can find in your mailbox if you're a member. And then there's some exciting new updates on the snow weather and avalanche guidelines and the new addition of snowy torrents. Talk a little bit about that for people that might not know. Yeah, so uh, TAR, the Avalanche Review, is a great benefit of membership. Um, and we have four issues every season. Lynn Wolf puts that together. And it is truly the like a bread and butter of A3. It's really, really awesome. And any new and relevant information is in there. Um, there's a lot of great papers that are posted in there, new research, um, job changes, A3 updates. It's really, really just a great resource. And then for the snow weather and avalanche guidelines, which you use if you take a Pro 1 or a Pro 2, uh, Ethan Green and the A3 Observations Committee just finished um, making an update to that uh, that publication. So we're on our fourth edition, and we will publish any changes that we've made in the Avalanche Review in the December issue, and we'll also circulate that in the A3 member newsletter. But you can now buy swag online either from Amazon, and it has a full bind, or from Mimeo, and it has a spiral bind. Uh, and it's not, uh, I, I like to say this because Ethan, it was just such a good example, but Ethan likes to call swag the snow science Bible. So mm. nothing, we didn't change anything drastically. It's just tweaks and updates and clarifications. But I think people will be um, really excited with the direction it's heading. And then the last piece of for publications is the snowy torrents. And this is actually, this is maybe my favorite update this year because Blaze Reardon and Spencer Logan finished it after five years of kind of starts and stops. Uh, and it is just so lovely. It chronicles uh, the accidents, U.S. accidents from, 90, from 86 to 1996. And it really kind of captures the introduction of the modern snowmobile that we know um, and really the increase in the modern levels of accidents that we see today. And it is just so well put together. It was edited by Emma Walker. Jill Fredston did the foreword. Um, and it's just, I can't recommend it enough. You can buy it on Amazon um, and it's like ships in a day. It's so cool and it's a seamless process. So I would recommend everyone get your copy. Yeah, amazing resource there. Um, let's now talk a little bit about some of the fundraising efforts that are ongoing with the A3. Um, it takes a, a, the whole community to make this happen. So um, what do we have on tap for the early season here for fundraising efforts? Totally. Well, once again, I'm super excited to announce that we have a uh, donor who has committed a $10,000 challenge grant to A3. And what this means is that from now until the end of the year, uh, so now until basically January 1, we get dollar for dollar matched up to $10,000. So if you give A3 a $25 donation, it's actually a $50 donation. Um, and it's just, we're so grateful for it. And we really are, we're implementing a lot of new projects. We're trying to offer more services and just be a better resource to members. And we can't do that without fundraising dollars. So 
I would just ask that as you consider renewing your membership, if you have capacity to toss on an extra 20 bucks, please do. Uh, if you know people who this work impacts, which is everyone, um, send them our direction and we'd love to have their support. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks for stopping by, Janie. And thanks for everything that you do and that the A3 does for our community. And for the listeners, go check out the website, www.americanavalancheassociation.org. You can find employment listings there. You can renew your membership. You can become a new member um, and much more. You can check out the new Avalanche Resilience Project, which we talked yes. about. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. Oh, we, we Yes, we should absolutely check out the Avalanche Resilience Project. It's brand new and it's so cool. And there are grants. You can apply for mental health grants for yourself or for your organization or team to have resilience training. And it's so cool. And it's live as of yesterday. So please go online and visit the Resilience Project. <laughs> you can tell how excited Janie is for that. And that's great. And you can hear uh, Gabrielle talk a little bit more about that on uh, the previous episode here. Um, Janie, once again, thanks for stopping by and um, have a great winter season. You too. Thank you, Caleb. We really appreciate you, and we're huge fans of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Additional support for this episode is provided by Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because I wanted a more streamlined approach to my health and nutrition. I appreciate AG1 because it gives me better gut health. It just makes me feel better with the probiotics. Um, I get more energy. I have a better optimized immune system and I wanted a supplement that actually tastes good. So it's super simple. I just put one scoop of AG1 in some water, shake it up, drink it down, and I'm done. The folks at Athletic Greens are consistently revising their recipe, which includes 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. So you can be sure that they're not just using some old recipe. They're consistently looking at what's going to be best for your body to bring about the nutritional insurance that you need. I'm all about adapting sustainable routines that are going to better my health and life. And I've found that taking AG1 in the morning has become one of those valuable sustainable routines. You know, I get busy and I forget to take care of myself. And it's nice that AG1 kind of has my back with that nutritional insurance. I've been reaping the benefits of taking AG1 and I think you can too. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is gonna give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Check it out. And without further ado, we're going to jump into our feature presentation with Jared Drake, Steven Sig, and Jim Plain. Welcome, fellas. Um, Jared and Steve are writers and directors of the recently released film buried the 1982 alpine meadows avalanche and jim plain was the avalanche forecaster at alpine meadows during that time uh, the film has won numerous awards at film festivals around the country uh, it was released in late september 
in some select cities. And I would say I've, I've watched the film several times, and I'd say it's a, a gripping account of a tragic event. Um, and it certainly kept me glued to the screen and sent chills down my spine each time I watched the film. I would say that this film does a great job at reaching both a, both a general audience, but especially I think it hits home for those folks who work in the snow and avalanche industry and uh, couldn't recommend it more to anyone to watch this film. So Jared and Steve, why don't you just introduce yourselves and, and talk a little bit about why you uh, came to the to realization that, that this should be a story that should be told. Yeah, uh, I'm Jared Drake. I'm the co-director, producer. Um, Sig and I, we both, we both live in Alpine Meadows full-time. So, you know, the story here in the event of 82 is really sort of woven into the fabric of our community. And, you know, we wanted to capture that story before it's too late, before we can't. Um, Jim was actually a driving force to try and get the film told and the story made. Um, eventually for us, like the film is first and foremost, you know, a, a, a film for 82, for those that were here in 82, for those that live in North Lake Tahoe that experienced it, you know, like at its heart, we really made the film for our community. Um, beyond that, it, it is, um, uh, 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 a, a film for ski patrol and snow safety professionals worldwide. Um, you know, we really hope that this movie would be something that we can take the events and the circumstances of 82 and, you know, touch on and capture what those that experience worldwide who work in, you know, avalanche mitigation and snow safety, what they experience and sacrifice, you know, both physically and mentally and emotionally and, you know, that was really the driving force. Those were our goals. I think on a broader perspective, we hope that the movie would um, capture some bit of universal truth about what those that went through 82, what they experienced and how they've persevered these last 40 years. And if we can capture and tell how they've sort of triumphed in their own way within this, you know, really dark, tragic experience then that's something that audiences, regardless of whether or not, you know, they spend time in the mountains can, can take away, you know, with them. Yeah. This is Steven Sig and, you know, Jim and I've known each other for a long, long time. I, I actually live in an avalanche path in, in Alpine and Jim was one of our, um, or our only instructor avalanche, um, to get our specific avalanche certification, for a small private resort. And when we first met there, he gravitated to me, started talking about my background in action sport filmmaking. And he started tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Hey, this story needs to be told. You're the guy that needs to do it. And I looked at him. I was like, you're crazy, man. That is a <laughs> huge, huge story. And I don't have, one, the bandwidth or the skills to do something like that on my own. And when Jared moved here to Alpine Meadows, we realized that we had a really good working bond and relationship when it came to filmmaking. And I think we're both very reluctant filmmakers. Um, <laughs> Jared came from an L.A. background and my background. I saw a lot of tragedy and death, and I kind of wanted to steer away from that for a long time. And 
once we started working together, I was like, all right, here's a foundation. Here's a, here's a brother that I can actually sit down and, and make a serious movie about an intense moment in our history, a pioneering moment for all of ski professionals, snow professionals. So if we do it, we're going to have to do it in an intense, dramatic, and informative fashion. Because if we do it right, we can introduce these things to the general public. At the same time, we celebrate the actions of these professionals in this intense situation in 82. So if we tell this pioneering story, maybe we can start tapping people on the shoulder in the backcountry too and getting people a little bit more aware of the inherent risks, not only in the ski area, but outside of the ski area. And so the conversation or the conversations that we wanted to start really were the core of where this film is going. You know, we wanted to make it for our community and tell a historical perspective of something that's dear to our hearts, but it needs to go further than that. And I'm really proud of, of what we've been able to accomplish and the people that got involved to tell their stories so that these conversations can continue. So we can sit here on the radio with you. All right. When did you guys start hatching the idea and when did Jim come to you, Sig? Well, Jim and I had been friends. He keeps an eye. He's retired, but he keeps an eye on my house. And he's always been kind enough to tap me on the shoulder when things are getting weird above our house. And mm. it seemed like every time we talked, he was like, you got to do this movie, man. You got to <laughs> do this movie. <laughs> and uh, I was, I'm going to say. Ten eight, years ago? No. Caden's 17. Okay. So this was 16, 17 years ago that we yeah, started wow. talking about this. Holy cow. But Jared and I started working on it five years ago, maybe even six years ago. Yeah, I moved to Alpine about nine years ago. And mm -hmm. one of the first people I met was Sig knocking on my door saying, hey, if, you, if you're going to live in this territory, you got to know what it's about. And here's what happened. And here's what continues to happen. And here's what these mountains are. And... That was about eight, nine years ago, and you guys were already talking about the movie, and I was like, yeah. nope, like, left filmmaking, don't want to go back to it. Um, but knowing Jim and knowing, naturally meeting those from 82, you can't avoid it. People are down at the coffee shops, you experience, you talk about what's going on, you know, now in the mountains, and it's just a part of it. And I realized that after about two years, these conversations were, were already happening. So from like, there was like a two year period where we just talked and 82 became a part of, of our education to moving in the mountains. And what can we learn from it? You know, my wife and I move into our idyllic getaway. Like, are we going to embrace what this place is or are we going to try and ignore it and hope that we don't get our butts kicked? And we realized we kind of got to dive all in. And so once we made that choice, like, look, this movie's going to be told. It's going to be, we're already kind of telling it to ourselves. We just need to document it and film it and shoot it. Um, that was about six years ago. So the actual like production process of working on the film started really about six years ago. Um, and that started with conversations. It started with you know, sitting more with Jim, seeing who might be interested, who might want to talk. We didn't want to pressure anybody to talk, but who might want to talk. And then, and then, and then starting 
and that took about two years. And then we started production about four years ago. Um, but I think it'd be interesting to hear Jim, like, why did you want this story to be told? What was it over the years and decades where you were like, Hey, you know, somebody make this film, tell this story. Yeah, why'd you keep bugging me? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, in some sense, I think for all the same reasons you guys have already brought up that, uh, it was a really powerful experience for a lot of us, uh, and uh, there's a lot that can be learned out of it. It's it's very educational, really, if you look at it. And, uh, you know, a lot of... We were all young when this happened. And uh, uh, it was a seminal experience, I think, for all of the employees at Alpine Meadows. Um, we just had our 40th reunion remembrance of the friends that we lost this year and on the 31st and you know after the avalanche a lot of people left the area and scattered all over the country and it was amazing uh how many people came back for this made the effort to travel and be together again. Yeah, I think out of the 450 employees back in 82, like over 200? Yeah. Yeah. From the 82 crew actually showed up for the 30th wow. anniversary. Right. Yeah. Their 40th anniversary. And almost the entire ski patrol uh with the exception of the few that have passed on. Yeah. And I well, also remember Jim pushing for the film to be made cuz he really wanted to celebrate how hard everybody worked yeah. and how everyone came together as a community. And that was really yeah. a, a core part of what I wanted to do was celebrate community and how communities come together in these moments when faced with adversity. And Jim was like, everyone just worked their butts off to just keep going, do our jobs, yeah, go, go, go. And hopefully something miraculous will happen i i think i might add that uh part of it too came back kind of after the avalanche not necessarily uh the idea of a film but um as i mentioned in in the movie i completely broke down after the after it was all over the search and rescue and everything and um i was very fortunate that norm wilson my mentor uh came and helped when he heard about the the avalanche. And, uh, you know, when it was all over and we were back at the temporary rescue headquarters at the water district office, I completely broke down. And Norm saw me and he came up and put his arm around me and said, you know, that was a really difficult experience you guys just went through. But I want you to be really proud of what you did. And one of the things he said was that he believed it was probably the most difficult avalanche rescue ever performed in a ski resort situation. And that was because of the ongoing storm, uh, which lasted uh, about two weeks. Yeah, Jim, I was hoping you could maybe get into a, a summary of the events. Um, you know, I think many people have heard about this event, uh, especially, 
you know, if, if you're in the Lake Tahoe area, but, but other listeners may not know some of the details. I, I know I first heard about this, this avalanche from Larry Haywood at the National Avalanche School in maybe 2006. And I was, I had just completed my first year of ski patrolling and, and I just remember him talking about the, the avalanche and the, the rescue efforts and events that followed um, and just thinking, I have no idea how, how you could handle something like that. And so if you <laughs> could, you know, just, just paint, paint the picture a bit of, of what happened. And of course, you know, don't, maybe you don't need to go into, uh, every single detail, but, but give us a summary of the storm that hit North Lake Tahoe at that time and, and kind of the events that followed. Yeah, so uh, as you know, this was a late-season storm at the end of March. Uh, We'd gone through a period of uh, basically very spring-like weather, and uh, uh, the snowpack was, you know, turning into a spring-like character. Uh, Melt-freeze going on. Basically, a... uh, atmospheric river type event you know formed up and started coming in and and initially it started kind of easy seemed pretty routine and uh but as time went on uh the five days leading up to the avalanche uh it just continually ramped up in terms of wind speeds and precip amounts and it dumped the uh, way we do control work at Alpine Meadows uh, during these big storm events, uh, we had a system where we would basically kind of ratchet down the operation. And, you know, we'd give up on the upper mountain uh, for skiing uh, early on um, and basically do control work to protect the the base area and then focus our efforts lower down on the mountain and kind of shrink the operation down until uh, the day of the avalanche when uh, we came in to go to work. And uh, I looked at the storm totals and, uh, you know, the snow amounts, the intervals, um, and the wind speeds, which were on Wednesday morning, uh, basically hurricane force, 120 miles an hour several times during the night. I just realized that uh, and felt very strongly that there was no way that we could operate that day. Um, And so uh, we made the decision uh, after quite a bit of discussion to um, close it up. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because probably not that many people would have been able to get there anyway. The the roads in those days, the plowing wasn't so good and the community was really, as as Larry mentioned in the film, pretty paralyzed. Hmm. So, and, and what sort of snow amounts and snow water equivalent had you seen to that point in the storm? Um, so basically it was averaging two to three inches an hour uh, with those high winds. The uh, densities were pretty typical for the Sierras, but... You know, they would fluctuate. We get fluctuating temperatures. 
And, uh, you know, it was just a situation of monitoring the conditions, keeping a close eye on it. And, uh, you know, several times during the storm, we ended up uh, performing mitigation work um, twice a day, you know, in the morning and then again in the evening, especially above the base area and on the Alpine Meadows Road. Yeah, I'm sure as as many ski area avalanche workers know, it can be very difficult to keep up with uh, mitigation efforts during a storm intensity such as that, right? Yeah. Um, maybe talk a little bit about how Alpine Meadows Ski Resort is, is kind of situated within the terrain and, and the prevailing winds and some of the some of those factors that contributed to um, such a climax event? Sure. Um, so Alpine Meadows is located essentially in a kind of like a box canyon um, just below the Sierra Crest. The elevations aren't particularly high. Um, and these aren't particularly large mountains, but the microclimate is uh, pretty intense. We're located right at the Sierra Crest and on the uh, west side of the mountain, uh, perfectly aligned to the prevailing uh, storm winds, is this canyon that uh, comes up through the Granite Chief Wilderness and just funnels the weather right at Alpine. It's the first major barrier uh on the Sierras right there. And uh, it acts like a huge snow fence. So the um, the deposition rates can be just phenomenal. There are many times what we observe down at the study plot in the base area. And again, that's because of the wind. It's, it's great for skiing because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we do have all of these, you know, a lot of people forget that some of the best skiing is in avalanche, you know, areas. Yeah. And that's what's great about Alpine is that we get all of this snow and and but when it gets to a point where it's coming in too strong, too fast, you know, it's really hard to purge those slopes and to keep personnel up there. And I think this particular storm Jim was able to go to the mountain manager and express that they should not open that day. And that was really key is the communication within upper management when, you know, management wants to open no matter what, even if it's, you know, limited operations. There was a very awkward phone call that morning uh, between Bernie and the general manager, Howard Carnell, who was at his lakefront condo and (laughs) saying, well, gee, it doesn't seem that bad here. (laughs) Which is which is lakefront condos like, uh, like a couple minutes. It's like ten minutes down the road. Yeah, but yeah. because of the microclimate, it's storming in Alpine. Yeah, and there there can often be a disconnect between, uh, you know, management and the folks on the ground that are actually seeing what's what's going on. Right. Totally. No, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's something that Alpine learned the hard way over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, yeah, and I think the industry on a whole has changed, and I think there is more respect now, even from community. And, and it's one of the things yeah. that we wanted to bring up in the film is that 
we have to listen when snow professionals are raising yellow flags or even red flags. Yeah. And it seems that the ski areas are now tuning into that a lot more than they used to. And I think, well, it's been a while. I spent a lot of time in the backcountry, but it seems like back in the day, everyone would be yelling and screaming at ski patrol to hurry up and open the mountain. And I think that that is lessening, I hope, you know, and I hope that people start respecting ski patrol more and respecting the avalanche forecast that we see. And I, I feel that there is a change in, in the mind frame of both public and, and upper management of these ski areas. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing we were a little questionable about going into making the movie is how supportive would Alpine and back then Squaw now Palisades Tahoe, how supportive would they be about us, you know, telling this part of a very dark history. And, um, you know, we spent a couple of years starting to work on the film without really informing anyone. And, um, when we finally did decide what the movie was that we're going to tell, we introduced it to, to the resort and, and the management and they were a hundred percent behind it. And I think that's a testament to, you know, uh, those of us living here acknowledging that we, we need to talk about what goes on in these mountains and the way to stay safe is to share what you've seen and share what you know. And it's nothing to hide behind, but actually something to get out in front of. And that's been pretty awesome to see. Yeah. And the, the, like Jared said, the Alpine Meadows, they didn't even blink when it was like, Hey, we're making this film and we want to make you aware of it. Not only did they, were they immediately supportive? They wanted to help however they could, you know, they Mm. couldn't just jump in and make a, you know, be a part of the production or anything, but they allowed us to film on the mountain they knew what we were doing, and they just expressed nothing but support and still continue to do that. And I think it really comes down to making the general public more aware of the inherent risks. You know, for a long time in the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s, it was really about, you know, come to the mountains and it's Disneyland. And it's like, hell yeah, we can have a lot of fun up here, but we have to constantly be aware of the inherent risks. You know, even collisions and all of those things, rather than just putting on the back of the ski pass, let's make it a part of the conversation. And, you know, the CEO at at Palisades Tahoe, Dee, she's just so supportive of the film. I think she's seen the film three or four times herself. Mm -hmm. And she wants to be fully tuned in. And she wants all of her personnel to be fully tuned in. Because then we're all being responsible and we're all respecting each other's positions. And that's something that's really refreshing in the industry right now. Well, yeah, it's, it's projects like this that help to create that cultural shift. That's, that's very much needed. And, you know, this is 40 years after the event. Right. And, and I think that cultural shift probably didn't happen for, you know, maybe 25 years. Right. And, and I think that's about about the right timing. Yeah. What I've experienced is just kind of a change from sweeping these events under the rug and going to the bar and drinking it away yeah. and to actually processing and, and talking about um, what happened. And, and I think that's helpful for everybody, right? Yeah. Jared likes to bring up 
and, and I, I always want to reinforce it because I like what, how he says it, but the observations that we get at the Avalanche Centers are so core. And this film really is an observation. It's a deep obser- observation. And those observations are so key to keeping people tuned in to what's going on in the snowpack, what it can do, etc. So the observation that we created with this film, I think, is key. And I always respect you bringing that up, you know, because this is, for a lot of people, an introduction. You know, a lot of people love this film in Austin, Texas, and they don't know anything about snow. And that's why it was critical for that first act to have a good overview of what an avalanche is and where Alpine Meadows is and how did this happen, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, we've gotten comments, and I'm not poking fun at this by any means, but even in San Francisco, which is not too far away, we've had comments after screenings asking if avalanches still happen. <laughs> Do avalanches still happen? We go, we ski every every year in Alpine. Do avalanches still happen? It's like, <laughs> yes, they happen. And there's real fear in there. Not fear, but acknowledgement. And that, whoa, there's something else going on up there that I need to... I need to, to, to know about and be slightly more aware of. And, you know, going back to why we made the movie or one of the goals of the movie we hoped would be to kind of shake people out and wake them up a bit so that they just look around a little more. And the fact that somebody is asking that question that didn't before they went to the movie, do avalanches still happen up there? <laughs> That's a success. That's yeah. a win for us. Cause all of a sudden they will be more aware and, yeah. That's what we need. We need more awareness. People just lifting their head and looking around. Yep. Awareness and respect for sure. Yeah. Um, Jim, before we kind of get maybe back into the summary of events, talk a little bit about the culture of the ski patrol in the late seventies, early eighties when, when you got there. Um, what was it like? It, It looks like it was probably a great time. (laughs) yeah uh we were all young and uh yeah uh we were having a great time it was uh a really exciting experience i think uh all of us were uh you know we had so much to learn it was just fascinating and and um uh alpine meadows was really blessed to have uh, two of the really greatest mentors in the avalanche business who had worked under Monty Atwater in on the uh, avalanche team for the 1960 Winter Olympics. They migrated over to Alpine after the Olympics. And um, these were men of great experience, pioneers in the industry. And I think we were all really excited to to be working with them. Um, I know I sure was. I was just a regular kid, a lo- regular local kid who uh, I had gotten to see the Winter Olympics when I was 11 years old, and that's what kind of put me on this that track. And um, I just wanted to be part of that experience in the mountains. And uh, so right out of high school, uh, I was very fortunate to get a job at Alpine and quickly uh, got on the on the ski patrol under these guys along with uh, a whole bunch of wild and crazy uh, climbers that came up out of Yosemite Valley uh, to work the winters and um, 
yeah, it was just a a really amazing time. Yeah, and if, you know, when you sit back and you start interviewing everybody and everybody talks about it, what an exciting time it was. Um, but everyone took the job very seriously. And I think yeah. still to this day, anybody that comes and works in the mountains, you know, it's it's rugged work, but you have to take it with lots of fun mixed with a lot of professionalism. And this was a pioneering moment, I think, in, in Ski Patrol. And Jim was developing, you know, a whole system that I think is the core to a lot of the avalanche mitigation systems throughout the world. So it was exciting, fun, and pioneering. And you put all that together, and, you know, I just... I'm always in wonderment of it. It was like, man, I was born freaking 20 years late. <laughs> I wanted to be back there back then, you know, and Meredith Watson, she, you know, she's a pioneer herself when she came to Alpine Meadows and it was a pioneering moment for women in the mountains too. Um, all happening here in the early eighties. And that's just so cool in my opinion you know i think it was one of the reasons we went into that backstory of what the lifestyle was in the moment and you know what was everybody doing they were all having a lot of fun and working their butts off to maintain a sense of i hate using the word control but yeah. back then that was the word right we were trying to tame mother nature to a certain degree yeah. and a lot of lessons were learned when we started looking at it that way and it's yep. like you can't control her but you got to be more aware of it and so seeing that pioneering moment and all that I, energy was just really cool yeah i would just add that uh too that um yeah it was a lot of fun but we all really quickly realized uh how dangerous this game was what we were doing. Uh, Alpine Meadows produces a lot of very large avalanches and, you know, 10 foot crown lines are not uncommon. And man, when that breaks at your ski tips, it really wakes you up. And, uh, you know, people fell off of cornices. We get huge cornices at Alpine Meadows, boxcar size. And, uh, (laughs) We all quickly realized, or we used to call it, head-to-head combat. You know, and, and unfortunately, this wasn't the first fatal avalanche at Alpine Meadows, right? In 1976, the Beaver That's Bowl correct. avalanche claimed three lives. That's um, correct. And was that sort of the impetus for a more structured avalanche forecasting program at the resort? Yes, it was, exactly. Um, I can go into a little bit of the history Uh of the development of the program at Alpine Meadows, which is kind of interesting. It's, it's like I said, uh, they learned the hard way for a good while um, in the beginning. I think, uh, you know, Monty Atwater was involved in the development of the resort as the head snow ranger in our district. And uh, he recognized immediately that uh, <laughs> there were a lot of avalanches there. And, but he also identified a really cool spot to put a piece of artillery in on a knob that is basically pretty darn safe from avalanches just right above the base area. And uh, uh, 
it's interesting what that was a requirement for the special use permit, but that came about it during the beginning of the Vietnam War, and they couldn't get a piece of artillery for a while, so uh, several seasons. And those first couple of years, uh, the place basically just had to shut down in these big storms. And then later on, things they got the artillery, and, you know, I, I think maybe in hindsight, Monty was a bit overconfident uh, in, in the use of artillery, uh, solving all problems, but uh, anyway, as time went on, uh, you know, we started to see different kinds of storm conditions, you know, the, the really truly big events, and uh, the first one that, that I was aware of, I was, uh, in 1974, I was the assistant uh, director of the ski patrol, and uh that was a time period where Alpine was growing rapidly. We built uh, a new lift that opened up a whole lot of terrain. We had to develop three new avalanche routes. They added uh, several new vehicles to the grooming crew. Uh, the personnel was, was growing. Uh, the ski patrol was growing. And I think they were struggling to keep up with, with that growth. And so... Uh, in March, we got this big storm cycle with a pretty weak snowpack, and uh, I triggered a big avalanche that, uh, because the protocols weren't so great, uh, happened to uh, take out two grooming machines uh, who were in an area that they shouldn't have been in uh, during the control period, and Again, just because the protocols weren't so highly developed, and um, I was pretty upset about the whole situation, and I had to write a report for the Forest Service about it that was quite critical of the management uh, at that point. And uh, but I put my neck out there and uh, stood by that report, and unfortunately, they did not. I had to make some recommendations and or they asked for that, but unfortunately they didn't implement them in the next season. And so I left Alpine. I didn't want to be part of it. Yeah, the next season. And I got a really cool job uh, doing snow surveys for the Department of Water Resources down at the University of Nevada in Reno. It was a one-year uh grant-funded program where I had this ski tour with a partner of mine uh, who had been on the ski patrol. We both left at that point, and we had to ski tour into the headwaters of all of the rivers that drain into Nevada from the Sierras and collect snow samples for water purity analysis. But while I was doing that, I was able to uh, really learn about snow metamorphism in a variety of different environments and um, and locations. And uh, anyway, uh, the next season, I worked on the grooming crew, and that was the year that they had the accident up in Beaver Bowl um, that uh, ultimately and sadly killed three people. Um, 
the patrolman who did the shooting that day uh, didn't like his results, and he recommended to uh, Bernie that they keep that area closed. It was a drought year. It was the first clear powder day of the season, and people were pouring in, so the pressure was on. And unfortunately, they made the decision to go ahead and open that area. And uh, about midday, or actually, no, it was still in the morning, um, some skiers entered in there and uh, triggered this enormous uh, slide. Anyway, as a result of that event, uh, the management had to acknowledge that at that time they really needed to make some changes, and uh, they took it upon themselves to uh, implement, actually, the recommendations that I had made two years prior, and um, they asked me to come back to work to do that. And and that's, uh, I remember in the film, you reflecting on, on feeling honored but a bit nervous about that. And, and you've, yeah. you've had the experience of seeing what these mountains are capable of producing. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious if you have um, any advice for other younger avalanche professionals that are stepping <laughs> in the shoes that they feel are maybe a little bit big for them. Cause I think that happens fairly often in our industry. Boy, it sure did for me. You know, I was 27 years old. Uh, when I got asked to do that. And I always remember, I uh, Bernie called me in September, asked me to come back to work, and uh, I just thought, holy cow, I need to think about this. And I got in my truck and uh, drove up to Alpine and uh, drove up on the, into the area where the condominiums are located, which are up on a little bit of a, or a hill, and it uh, has a fabulous view of the ski area. And I just turned my truck around, parked there, and I just sat and contemplated the mountain for a good while and thought, you know, <laughs> what would this be like? Tried to imagine it. And, oh, man, I don't know. It, I, I still, it <laughs> gives me a bit of a rush when I think about it. it, it you know, I just really couldn't imagine what I would be getting into and of course i couldn't even imagine at that point the 1982 event but uh but indeed i felt very honored by bernie that you know to uh ask me to come back and i just i was i don't know maybe a bit torn i just in trying to make up my mind and uh but I just felt like, uh, wow, he asked me to do it, so I'll do it. And uh, It was almost like there was a, a calling not only from Bernie, yeah. but the calling of the mountain. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Jared and I used to, we talked about, you know, making a narrative film and that we would make that film more about a love affair between Jim and, and the snow and the mountains. And... Uh, when you sit back and you, you recall all these things, you know, words like destiny and, you know, serendipity and all of these things all came together to create a great program that Palisades Tahoe has today. 
You know, if Bernie didn't ask Jim back and they didn't implement all these things, you know, we'd be, you know, a decade, if not more behind with all of this. And it's really cool seeing the mitigation programs evolve today. You know, Mm -hmm. we have, you know, much keener tools, you know, at our disposal, but the core of avalanche mitigation is within yourself. And so the calling to the mountain is always an important thing. And that's why the awareness factor is so important because when the mountain does call, you know, it's intense and we see gnarly things in the mountains and we have to be ready for that. And 82 and these experiences that Jim had before that were really, really important, you know, so we can learn these things. So when the mountain does call that we, we ultimately have a better awareness of what we're getting ourselves involved with. And Jim, Jim, what would you say to young professionals today getting into the industry or what would you say to your 27 year old self back then? Um, yeah, so uh, I think the big thing that I would say is, you know, if you're getting interested in this topic, and it's endlessly fascinating, it really is, and um, if you're getting inter- interested in it, give yourself time. Um, give yourself time to do the learning. Um you know, nowadays you can very quickly learn a lot of the sort of the technical aspects of things. There's, you know, a tremendous amount of information out there about, um, you know, kind of how to do forecasts and stuff like that. But I think the thing that is often missed is, it, and it's something I, I saw for a good while in avalanche education, I think the thing that is often missed is that you also need experience. And it took me uh, seven years of snow work, ski patrolling and snow surveying, before I found that I began to develop the intuitive side. And we used to always say that one of the things that's so interesting about avalanche work is that it is a mix of art and science, and uh, the science is pretty straightforward and, and pretty well known now, understood now, and documented, but it's the intuition that just takes a while to develop, and uh, you don't get that right away, and you're only fooling yourself if you think, think you have it. Give yourself time to learn. Mm. Very sage advice there. Um, Jim, let's talk a bit more about the events that happened March 31st, 1982. Um, as you stated before, you know, this was a ongoing, very intense storm, and your team was trying to keep up with avalanche mitigation efforts throughout the storm. Again, on, on March 31st, uh, you and Bernie decided to keep the mountain closed uh, for the day, right? And, um, well, and, yeah, we didn't know how long that would be because the, the forecast was just getting worse all the time. Sure. So, Weather. so looking forward, it was likely going to be closed for several days. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned is that you all were doing avalanche mitigation efforts for the, 
the road into Alpine Meadows, mm-hmm. which has houses along it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I believe when the avalanche happened, um, there was a team going over to ride KT-22 on the Squaw Valley side of things yes. to, to conduct that avalanche control work. Um, so talk about some of the events that played out as that was happening. Um, so that's pretty well covered in the, in the film, but, um, yeah, I, I was leading a team, uh, two teams, uh, over to Squaw Valley. It takes two, there's two separate control routes. Uh, we go over to Squaw Valley, right up the KT 22 lift to access those. And, uh, driving down the road on the way over, uh, it was really interesting because, as is talked about in the film, as the truck was going down the road, there were natural avalanches releasing small surface sloughs releasing um, all around us and all off the snowbanks and stuff just from the vibration of the truck going down the road. I'd never seen anything quite like that, and uh, <laughs> it really... I think for all of us raised um, the uh, alert level in the truck uh, that uh, this was really unusual and we were probably going to see some really big events. And uh, so uh, the tension was high by the time we got over to, to Squaw at the base of the lift. And then, you know, there, (laughs) there wasn't, uh, wasn't anybody around that we were expecting to meet there. It was kind of like, uh, wait a minute, where is everybody? And then a lift guy shows up and mentions that the patrol is all over up in the Squaw Valley subdivision at a house that had just been hit by an avalanche. And they, they were trying to assist in a rescue over there. So they wouldn't be going up with us. And uh, then we started getting these uh, these fragments of a radio conversation that is mentioned in the film that alerted us that something had also happened at the same time back at Alpine Meadows. Eventually, we were able to establish communications by phone with the other side, and uh, that's when... um, uh, by calling Bob Blair, the patrol director, he said, told us that he, he wasn't sure what had happened, but we needed to get back right away. And so we aborted our control mission, which then added to the complexity of access back to the ski resort and the beginning of the avalanche rescue. It was interesting, you know, hearing the stories. I didn't realize that there was so much avalanche activity going on until we started interviewing everybody yeah there was the slide in on the palisade on the olympic valley side yeah and that went into some houses but there was also a car buried on highway 89 so it wasn't that this avalanche was just in alpine which i think is really important when you go back and you talk about you know the court case etc yeah you know it wasn't just isolated to, to alpine you know all yeah. the Sierras w- was starting to uh, come undone. <laughs> come undone, get unzipped. In fact, they reached a really extreme runout 
distances as uh, is often measured by the use of alpha angles these days. And uh, uh, they, they reached uh, 21 degrees alpha angles. Very few avalanches in the world run that far. Let's shift a little bit and talk about the rescue efforts. So ultimately, uh, a building at the base area of Alpine Meadows was taken out. There were people inside, um, as well as, uh, un- unfortunately, a, a ski patroller was killed who was acting as a road guard with a snowmobile um, for the road mitigation work. Um, so f- from your perspective, Jim, you guys beat feet back over to Alpine Meadows from the base of Squaw Valley, and um, it must have been just kind of utter chaos. What do you remember going yeah. through your your head? Um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of things. Well, as it progressed, when we got back to Alpine, uh, we met a roadblock at the beginning of the avalanche zone on the Alpine Meadows Road where the general manager, Howard Carnell, and the ski patrol director, Bob Blair, had set up a, uh, a roadblock to prevent people going into that zone. And we were informed that uh, there were a couple of snowcats being brought down from the ski resort to transport us up the back roads in the subdivision uh, to the ski area. And uh, so... While we were waiting, we spent a little bit of time uh, trying to uh, sort out, uh, based on reports we had gotten from the base area, uh, what might have happened up there. We still didn't really understand the magnitude of it at that point, but we started to strategize how to pull this rescue off. And uh, so Howard Carnell was going to, go back down uh, to the water district office. They'd already been notified about what had happened and set up a rescue headquarters there. And, uh, and then when the snowcats arrived, uh, we piled on. Uh, we used our uh, lift of vac ropes that we always took with us to ride up the KT-22 lift and set up a kind of a rope toe, tied them onto the back of the snowcats. And at that point, word had gotten around in the community, amazingly enough. And uh, as is mentioned in the film, people were coming out of their houses dressed and ready with shovels to help us. And, and uh, so as we made our way back up through the back roads of the subdivision, and uh, arrived at the entrance to the parking lot of the ski area, we were confronted with a 20-foot wall of snow burying the road. And uh, the snowcats had to climb up on top of that. And as soon as we did that, uh, as we were entering the parking lot, everything became kind of unrecognizable because, uh, you know, there (laughs) there was... big debris piles with trees and power lines. And uh, soon we saw uh, Jake's snowmobile uh, turned upside down on the uh, top of the debris. And we instantly knew that uh, that would have been Jake, who was 
assigned to be the road guard, one of the road guards. Um, so we dropped off a couple of patrollers there to do a beacon search and, and locate him, which they did pretty quickly. And then the rest of us proceeded up through the back parking lot, which is affected by avalanches um, up to the base area in the, the lodge. And uh, I always remember walking up through the maintenance yard um, at the base area and uh, coming out where we could see the what was called the Summit Terminal Building, which was our ski patrol headquarters and employee locker rooms. And I got sick to my stomach just looking at the wreckage. It was, it's, it's interesting when you hear Jim talk about that moment, because one of the things we were talking about earlier was intuition, you know, and obviously this is 1982 and there's no cell phones and phones were actually still working to a certain degree, but the community could tell what was going on. Like, I, I don't think there was a lot of communication. Like there is an avalanche at Alpine Meadows. I think people just had this intuitive feeling that they needed to help and they wanted to help because communication wasn't what it yeah. is today. Yeah. I don't and know how the words. Yeah. But. It's a fascinating moment. And, and the, the journey up the back roads to Alpine <laughs> was a major moment. Like we wanted to put that in the movie, but it's a harrowing feat getting up to the mountain through the back roads. And a lot of people came together in that moment to get enough personnel up there to start this, this rescue mission. And uh, it's a fascinating moment that we weren't able to get to in the film, but you know, maybe there's a, a time and a place that we can talk about that moment yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah. The heart of the story for us, or a big part of it, was always how does this group from 82 or kind of this ragtag bunch with different backgrounds, <laughs> different personalities, how did they come together in this moment of, you know, kind of woe? And when they're faced with their own mortality and mother nature steps to them and says, Hey, I'm here. Like, what do they do? And yeah, there's the beats of the event of 82 and what happened during that rescue of, you know, or search for those five days. And for us, it was really interesting to dive into that and say, yeah. okay, what's really going on here? Like, how do they come together and yeah. work together in, in I the face of all that? Yeah, and I, I think I can offer an answer to that. I credit our training program. It was phenomenal. We spent a tremendous amount of time training in between storms when we weren't so busy. Training, training, training. That's what we were always doing. And, uh, you know, a lot of that was led by Bernie, and uh, some of that was led by our great, cadre of climbers from Yosemite, rope work and all of that kind of stuff. I was responsible for all the route training and uh, avalanche rescue training. And uh, it was just a big part of our program. And uh, it really paid off, you know. Uh, yeah, there were moments right at the beginning, like, oh, my God, I think I'm quoted in the film saying, what do we do with this? And... 
you know, then you realize very quickly <laughs> you actually know what to do with it because you've been trained and you got to just put it in gear and get going. And it's not easy, but, uh, you know. You know, it wasn't just one area that yeah. people were looking. You know, you had where Jake was. Yeah. You know, still don't know how many people were there, et cetera. And so all of that information came rather quickly once your team got there. Yeah, but like. the first thing that Bob and I did was to start uh, interviewing the the witnesses and survivors so we could figure out you know the layout of things and um, where people might be and wow listening to those eyewitness accounts was horrifying yeah and you you can hear the trauma still you know and these are mostly your friends because if you don't have public there you know this is all everybody that's working or, um, yeah. you know, so we're talking groomers to, you know, tr- tractor operators clearing the, the roads, all the mechanics. These I, were the people that were there. So they're all your I, friends and yeah, family. I think one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is uh, when the media was finally able to interview uh, uh, Ran- Randy Buck and Jeff Scover, who had been in the office with Bernie at the time of the avalanche. Uh, and you can see their trauma in those. Yeah, that was, that was certainly a chilling scene for sure. Um, having them been in the building when the avalanche hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as, and the avalanche destroyed the summit terminal building, but the toe of the avalanche went all the way into the lodge, Mm -hmm. which is really, really far and and beyond and beyond in the, the powder blast you know, which is usually the most destructive, just tore apart the the windows. And there was, I think, 20 people in the lodge or something like that, all taking a cocoa break because everyone had been working so hard. Yeah, I I honestly don't remember how many people were allowed to come to work that day because, you know, we, we told the vast majority of the crew not to come in. And, uh, but I, I don't remember how many people were in the lodge itself. It, it didn't seem like it was a whole lot. And so over the course of the next five days, you know, the rescue efforts were hampered by the ongoing storm. And one of your responsibilities was, was rescuer safety, right? Which was mm-hmm. no easy feat during, during a storm of that magnitude. No. Um, Talk a little bit about some of the tough decisions you you had to make throughout that process. Oh boy, uh, <laughs> yeah, quite a few. Um, let's see. So, uh, you know, rescues—you need a lot of help. But here's a situation where um, you know access is difficult. And uh, the base area is pretty confined. Um, so we really had to think about how many people did we want to introduce to this scene and how were we going to get them there? And then, uh, you know, my job basically became after that, basically monitoring the avalanche conditions 
and uh, you know, keeping keeping up with that. One of the first things we had to figure out, and it was very difficult because visibility was quite limited. And that was where did this thing come from? You know, what slopes were involved? And uh, you know, we quickly recognized uh, that we hadn't seen anything quite to this magnitude before historically. And that made me start to realize that if those slopes slid to that magnitude, there were other parts of the mountain that can affect the base area, that if they slid to a similar magnitude, it would take out the entire base area. Hmm. So I had a lot on my mind. And uh, I can't tell you how stressful that was. Basically juggling the decision to keep the search going, knowing yeah. that there still might be hazard versus yes. pulling people out. And right. Saying, let's go home. Let's let it clear up and we'll come back once we know it's safe. Yeah. Um, you know, that first day we did have a lot of hope. Maybe, maybe we could find some people and, and, uh, get, get them out, out. Okay. And, but that quickly, you know, as time went on that afternoon, that quickly began to diminish beyond the time that, you know, people typically can survive in an avalanche. And, uh, we honestly started to think we were shifting into recovery mode and and then uh it got late it got dark it was cold there was no power no lights uh very little food uh and uh people people were getting miserable and we finally just decided we can't stay here all night we got to mm-hmm. we got to stop this and come back tomorrow all while the storm was even ramping up more and more, you know, that's... Yeah, actually, at that point, it, uh, there was sort of an interval in the storm there. And, and uh, so the next morning, when we got up uh, early, we uh, met before dawn and uh, tried to lay out a plan. We'd been offered the use of a helicopter uh, that belonged to the Heavenly Valley Ski Resort, and uh, as the sun came up, we realized, oh, we might be able to fly. And so uh, we arranged with uh, Squaw Valley to get uh, some bombs and because uh, we couldn't access our magazines safely. So Lanny and I were dispatched to meet the helicopter down at the roadblock on Highway 89 and as one of the it's one of the dramatic scenes in the film, as we're waiting for this helicopter to arrive, we hear a helicopter coming and realizing that it's the media, uh, KCRA from Channel Three, and we basically hijacked that helicopter on the basis of obstructing a rescue, and uh, the pilot was willing to. Uh, help out and uh, so he he took us on board and uh, we were able to fly a quick mission up to uh, shoot the slopes above the access road on the back of kt-22 and uh, you know 
We didn't get big results from that mission. Uh, we got some. Anyway, for a while, we decided to go ahead and open the road to you know, make it easier for that second day to get people up there. Unfortunately, that didn't last very long as the storm came back in and we started to worry about it again. We're going to leave some details to folks to to find out on their own by watching the film because it's all it's all very well covered. Um, but, but I wanted to shift gears a little bit more into kind of the aftermath for you and, and an event like this um, could certainly leave leave rescuers or anybody involved with some severe stress injuries. And um, that's something that maybe during that day and time in 1982 wasn't really recognized as much as it is now. But I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk about your experience um, with PTSD or what we kind of generally refer to as stress injuries now. How did you deal with the aftermath of, of this event? Um, well, I'll admit it wasn't easy. Um, you know, I lost, I lost friends and I knew it had affected, uh, my whole crew. And, um, I think in some ironic way, uh, I was helped a bit in dealing with that through the avalanche trial experience. Um, so Alpine was uh, sued by the families of the victims who had been staying at the condominiums near the base area and walked into the, into the parking lot. And uh, so uh, they brought a suit against Alpine. And uh, through that process... Uh, working with the lawyers that uh, represented Alpine's insurance company, um, uh, I was able to, you know, basically work work through a lot of lot of stuff with them. They, I have to say, I got to work with some really great lawyers, and they understood how difficult a situation this would be for me, and they took really good care of me and uh, prepared me very well. Uh, it began when they asked me initially if I thought we had a case. And uh, after that phone call, I, I, you know, I said, I need to think about this for a while, and uh, I'll get back to you. And after thinking about it, uh, I just said, well, I feel like we did everything that uh, was called for, and uh, I felt that we had a defensible position and that we should go ahead and uh, defend this uh, lawsuit. So what I realized through that process and getting a verdict where we were found not negligent, that that lifted a tremendous weight off of my shoulders uh, it might have been different had it gone the other way for me, but I also realized that it actually kind of had given me a jump start in working through that trauma that some of the other members of my team didn't get 
because they weren't called as witnesses in the trial. Uh, and, uh, you know, I witnessed a lot of my friends from the team struggling with those issues. But I also didn't really know, you know, what I could do other than just try to, you know, back them. And then later that led to me beginning to think that maybe if we did tell this story and, and, and make a film about it, that it might be cathartic and help the other members of the team. And indeed that has happened. And so I'm very grateful for the members of my team that were willing to participate. Yeah, that that's a really good point because a lot of dealing with these stress situations, you know, it helps to talk and it also helps to listen. Yeah. And seeing the audience come and see the film because we, we wanted to share the film last year with our community before it went out to the world because we did make it for the community and so many stories started pouring out and you could tell that the project was indeed going to be cathartic because it got people talking and a lot of times people were like i didn't realize you were going through this while i was going through that yeah and so even 40 years later that conversation is really really key to, to the community healing yeah, and I remember, <clears throat> I mean, a telling moment for the journey of the film. We premiered it in Telluride um, just over a year ago. And I remember riding down in the gondola with, and we had very few people had seen the movie. We didn't know what the movie was or if it worked at all or if it would help. And I remember riding in the gondola with a lady who, was at our premiere the night before and she started telling me about a car accident that she had been in and lost somebody and was tearing up in this like five minute gondola ride about the film and, and, and her own grief and thanked us for doing it. And that, you know, I could hoped and sensed right there that, you know, this, could be cathartic for her yeah. and can open up conversation that maybe had been bottled up. I don't know. And I think beyond just snow safety and, and those that have experienced something in the mountains, I think anybody who's, you want to jump, jump in, Jim, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I want to highlight too, um, Megan Mickelson's article that she wrote for outside online. Yeah, about sure. her experience uh, in viewing this film as someone who was involved in the Tunnel Creek incident up in Washington. And uh, it was very cathartic for her, and she wasn't even really involved in this uh, thing, except that I guess she did grow up here, which I didn't realize. Yeah, she's a Nevada City girl. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, you know, that's the thing that both Jared and I have, have seen is that it the the story does transcend out of the mountains and community and and awareness and using stories like this to heal is really key these things you know it's very rewarding like i'd said earlier both jared and i are reluctant filmmakers 
you know, a lot of times people <laughs> we even say that we're not filmmakers. Um, why? I, I don't know. Maybe there's some trauma there for us, you know, in the business. But this has been healing for me, too, in that respect, is that I do like telling stories. And I don't consider myself a filmmaker. I consider myself a storyteller. And telling this story has had, you know, a cathartic effect on me, too. And that's that's rewarding, you know. It's really rewarding when people sit down and tell you your story, trust you to tell their story. You know, that's that's when you're like, there's a lot of reasons to make this film, and that's why this film is so important because it transcends through so many, you know, so easily. I think it's even helpful just for kind of a pre-stress events, right? Like anybody that's yeah. in the industry yes. uh, keeps this in the back of their head as yes. the, the worst day ever, the worst nightmare. Yeah. And I think it's super helpful to to see the visuals yeah. that are in the film um, and hear that story told kind of for yeah. that uh, prehab almost of, of what yeah, happened. You, you know, uh, I, I think... Uh, I think a great example of that is uh, how uh, the Jackson Hole Ski Patrol, uh, when they found out the, about the film through Lanny, who lives in Jackson, asked us for a copy to show to their team, um, you know, as a training video at the beginning of the season. And then being asked, you know, we're still working it out with the National Avalanche School. You know, it's a key element of of showing so many facets of what can happen in these situations. And it just really kind of grounds you so that you're a little bit more tuned in yeah. to what you're about to learn and experience and start doing this important training. Like Jim said, the most important part of the rescue efforts was all the training they did. And mm -hmm. using this film as a training aid is just, you know, makes both Jared and I pretty stoked. You know, it's it's important. It was something that we were like, yeah, well, maybe this story could help, you know, some backcountry skiers, you know, pull their act together and practice and do this, that, and the other thing. And here it is on a, even a higher, you know, more important note in helping professionals even was just one of those just great moments for us. And we really want this to be a resource um, for training and awareness. And I think we're getting it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'll be a legacy for sure. Jim, I got to ask you, do, do you still have a, the deep connection and love for snow-capped mountains as you did in 1980? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. Spent a lot of time out there. <clears throat> and that's probably cathartic for you as well. Yeah, yep. Yeah, Jim, like I said earlier, Jim, he's he's the first one to drive by my house on Alpine Meadows Road and gives me the the wake up call, hey, you know, get get up <laughs> and put your put yeah. your defense systems up and uh hunker down. Um you can see it, you know, a lot of times we won't be able to get a hold of Jim because Jim's down on the east side of the Sierras and you know, he's getting after it. You know. Yeah, I, uh, when I quit, quit uh, ski patrolling, um, I quickly recognized that my 
physical fitness was kind of going downhill because I wasn't out there every day hiking around the mountain. And so I was kind of like, hmm, what am I going to do about that? Oh, I know. So I got way into backcountry skiing and did some guiding. And, uh, man, I've been pursuing that ever since. And I just absolutely love it. Awesome. If you missed a release in the theater of Buried, um, you can now watch it with video on demand through Amazon and iTunes. So if you haven't seen this movie or you want to get your own copy, um, you can do that now through Amazon and iTunes. Any other details that people need to know, Jared or Steve? Yeah, um, you know, the, the project's going to be everlasting. Um, we have mm. a website, buriedfilm.com. Um, you can always write us a, a note and query, et cetera. Um, we don't know what's next for this project, but we know that this project's not done. Um, mm -hmm. Where it goes from here, you know, is kind of up to the audience. And, uh, you know, we're always open to ideas, and this is all about communication. So reach out to us, say hello, and uh, always give us a review. It's nice seeing, <laughs> you know, 100 audience score and 100 critic score that's hard to do on rotten tomatoes and we're super proud of it and we just want more and more people to go see this film because it's a story that not only everybody should know as snow professionals but it has a lot of themes in there that help people that are outside of you know the mountains and you can use this story um to help you when you're faced with a difficult situation and i think that's a really key theme to to the whole project yeah, no doubt. I I haven't asked, but I've been wondering how how was this funded? <laughs> Blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we um we have a great executive producer, Marco Galuski, who gave us uh, some initial funds, and that was five years ago. And we went through those funds really quickly, to <laughs> tell you the truth, when we got into produ production. But Jared and I you know, just kept charging forward. And although he has a day job, I have a day job, we have kids, we were still able to get out there when the conditions were right to go out and shoot. So there'd be certain days that Jared would go out and shoot, you know, if I had to go to work and there'd be certain days that I would go out and shoot, um, if he was at work. And then there was those awesome days where we could do it together and bring our best friends into the fold you know, this was a community effort, you know, not only within the story, but the production itself. So it's our best friends that are all in the film. Uh, my daughter's in the film. Um, our late dog Coco's in the film. And it's another cool part of, of why this project is so cool is that Jared and I just kind of kept scratching at it and scratching at it. And then all the people that started coming into the fold were critical and Matt Mercer who's our editor he just mm. he got the project right off the bat and to edit this story down is <laughs> was a huge feat and he did an incredible job and we were, we were actually very lucky to find Matt cuz he brought an element that I don't think Jared and I could have pulled off that the edit mm. um made our job easier when it came down to you know this, that, and the other thing. But then we brought in Julian, our composer, um, who did an incredible job on the score. And then Ryan, who did all of our sound design, 
these are all the important elements to make the production hit as hard as it needed to hit. You know, you don't want to dramatize the story, but it needs to be as intense and as powerful as the event was. And that's hard to do. And so the team that came together and rallied around this whole project, including the characters that, that we have, the interviewers that we have, or interviewees, is why this movie is so damn good. Is because everybody jumped in and just threw their heart on the table and just said, I want to tell this story. I want to help tell this story. I'm here to help. And so there's a huge thank you from Jared and I to our entire community. You know, and that goes down to the audience as well and the people who are coming out to see the film, you know, because we have a long road <laughs> to pay for the thing. <laughs> so every ticket counts, really. Every ticket counts to try and recoup um, those expenses. Jared, anything else you'd like to say about the, the film or the release? No, I think um, uh, I think Sig kind of said it. You know, we um, it's been a journey. I think the weirdest thing about this project that I haven't really experienced on any other films I've made is I'm bummed that production's over. You know, <laughs> like we spent four years making it and got to learn so much living with living with these guys, and it's kind of a bittersweet moment to like put it out there in the world and have it be over because yeah, there's still a conversation and that'll never stop. But like working on the movie has been so rewarding and such an incredible honor. Um, and really, you know, we, uh, we wanted to have our cake and eat it too. So it kind of touched on this with the film. Like we wanted to capture their experience authentically like sensationalized was a word that we were really sensitive to in the making of it. We did not want to sensationalize the story whatsoever and we wanted it to be authentic and capture what they experienced to the point where we had a screening a few years ago and we were just for those in the film, just for those that were there in 82. And we said, Hey guys, if you don't like it, like we'll scrap it. Honestly, like we can just put it on the shelves. And fortunately, our financier, who it's private equity basically that financed the movie, we did not want brand money. We did not want business money. We did not want film industry money because that would have dictated the type of film we could have made that we had to make. We would have made it, would have very subtly, even if it's not contractual, choices would have been made that would have impacted the movie. And we wanted to have our cake and eat it too. We wanted it to be. 100% authentic, but we also wanted it to be a kick-ass movie. And because we knew if we made a film that just kind of captures the nuts and bolts and like is truthful and honest, but doesn't like just bang as a film, no one's going to see it. Mm -hmm. And it won't get the reviews and it won't get the exposure yeah. for a small backyard production like this to have a nationwide theatrical release is a freaking <laughs> grand, it's a diamond in the rough. Like it's a grand slam for us. And now I think because Sig and I have taken the time to do it right and went back into the edit and blah, 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 and, you know, kind of kept pushing ourselves to, to make the movie as best we can. It's now out there widely and people get to connect with it because of that. And I don't know how we pulled that off. Honestly, I don't know. It was, it was all Jared. I don't know how we pulled it off, but man, <laughs> it's been, 
High five. <laughs> like, I don't know <laughs> how, so how you guys did it proud. with raising a family and kids and yeah, jobs. And My wife and I, our oldest <laughs> is five, and he was not born when this project started. And we wow. now have a couple. <laughs> I'm just so proud of those that stepped up to the plate, both who were there in 82 and were willing to tell their story and open their heart. And also those that followed along, you know, Sega, like our editors and our producers and everything else that came along throughout the process. It's been nothing but straight up just integrity with everyone involved. It's, it's a whoa moment for us. You know, it's, it's hard to have a passion film and make it this far with a film and it's going to keep going. Um, and, and it's attracted some some big wigs in the world too. We have Evan Hayes who won his um, Oscar with the F- Free Solo Project um, with Jimmy Chin and Chai, and you know they've been instrumental in in getting us into good conversations with the industry, and that was refreshing. And Michael Sugar, who comes from a narrative side feature film, he won his Oscar with a film called Spotlight. And these were people that just wanted to help, you know, they, they just wanted to help get this story out there. And, and I have to thank you too, you know, for giving us this time to talk about our film and try and get some more viewers out there. And that's just critical. It just keeps going and going and going. Well, great fellas. And, and I have to say, I, I do think that you guys really hit the mark on this one and, um, a, a wonderful production, um, and I'd recommend it to anybody. So um, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for your willingness to, to share your experiences, um, especially Jim, um, but, but also Steve and, and Jared um, in, in creating this wonderful film. So um, thanks for your time and appreciate you and hope to see you out in the snow sometime. Yeah. Thank you, Caleb. means a ton, man. Thanks, thanks buddy. everyone for yeah. listening. Big thanks to Jared, Sig, and Jim for coming on the show and sharing some of your experiences creating this film and especially uh, appreciate Jim with your honest reflection. And thanks to you for tuning in. I hope you check out the film and I hope you continue to listen and support the Avalanche Hour podcast. If you want to take your support one step further, tell a friend about the show. Get them hooked. Leave a review at Apple Podcasts for us. Uh, That's super helpful, and I appreciate those reviews coming in. Our artwork was created by Mike T, you to man T. Music on today's episode were the tracks Missed and Come Back by Ketza, and we use that with permission of the artist. You can check out more of Ketza's tracks at ketza.uk. Give us a follow on the Instagram and Facebook. We are at The Avalanche Hour Podcast on those social media outlets. If you have any feedback for the show, please reach out. Please send us an email, start a conversation. You can email us at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Tune in next time on Thursday, November 24th, when we highlight a episode hosted by Dom Baker from Nelson, British Columbia. And he's got a great interview with Tyson Reddy and also is going to provide us with a little update from Avalanche Canada. So we are looking forward to that one, Dom. Thanks for your hard work there. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.